Um, a reading from the book of Amos, chapter 5, starting the reading at verse 18, reading to verse 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or he went into the house and leaned with his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Reading from the New Testament, from the fourth book, the Gospel of Luke, commencing at verse 16, reading to verse 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue as this custom was on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read and it was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We thank God for his word. So Old Testament scholars don't often attract a lot of attention on social media. But last year, a tweet from a scholar called Michael Rhodes went viral. Well, at least went viral in Christian circles. The tweet gave a glimpse into some research he'd been doing on modern worship songs. And what he did was he looked at the list of the top 25 songs that are sung in churches in the West. And he compared these with the Psalms. And the themes that are in those top 25 and then the themes that are in the book of Psalms. And he came up with a very long list of comparisons, but I want to offer his top three insights with you today, because I think they're relevant to our theme. You see, the first thing he discovered was that though the Hebrew word for justice is found 65 times in 33 different Psalms, Do you know how many times it's mentioned in the top 25 worship songs today? Once in one song. The second thing he noted was that the poor are mentioned in some form on almost every page of the Psalter. But the poor are completely absent from the top 25. The third thing he noted is that the Psalms make frequent reference to the plight of widows, 
orphans and refugees. But all three groups are pretty much completely ignored in the top 25 songs sung today in the church. Now, what does this research tell us? Well, it tells us two things, doesn't it? First of all, it's clear from the songs sung by ancient Israel that stewarding justice was a very high priority for God's people. And how could it not be when we think back to what we learned last week? Remember last week how we learned about those song or that, that story of liberation from slavery that the Jewish tradition was meant to keep alive in its songs and its practices? Well, let me remind you of what God says to his people after that liberation from Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we read these words. God says, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress them, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. See, doing justice was at the core of this story of liberation. It was at the core of who God's people were meant to be. That's the first thing we learn from this research. The second is that justice seems to have slipped off the agenda for today's church. Christians don't seem to sing very much about justice anymore, except, of course, here in Newton Breda, where we've sung about it this morning. But more seriously, there seems to have arisen, I think, within sort of wider Christian culture, and in particular the evangelical world, a deep suspicion about justice. It seems there exists a fear that attention to social justice will somehow detract from what has seemed to be the real work of gospel proclamation. But I don't know about you, I find this a bit ironic because it seems to shortchange the gospel itself, doesn't it? Because we know that the good news of Jesus is much bigger and far more encompassing than how it's sometimes presented in certain quarters of Protestantism, I could say. I mean, if we look at Jesus' very first gospel proclamation, what is it we discover? Well, you heard Gary read it for us this morning. In Luke's account, we read how Jesus takes this text from Isaiah to proclaim that he has come to do, bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. You see, when we talk about the salvation that's offered to us in Christ, we're not simply thinking about our rescue from the consequences of sin, and of course that's important, but we're also thinking about the assurance that Christ will one day liberate us from all oppression, from all hardship, from all suffering. And so the task of Christ's church is not simply to proclaim the good news, but to enact the good news in the world. We are stewards of the gospel as we learned in that first week. But in order to bring the gospel, we need to be stewards of justice. Now our Catholic brothers and sisters have much to teach us in this regard. But I would suggest that so too does our own tradition, though we've maybe forgotten it. I wanna quote um, one voice from our shared Presbyterian history to illustrate this. In his 
probably most well-known theological text. This theologian goes to great pains to remind us that when we look at the stranger, even the stranger who wants to do us harm, we are to look upon the image of God in them. And he goes on to say that when we do that, when we look at the stranger and see the image of God, we will perceive in them, in his words, a beauty and a dignity that will allure us and compel us to love and embrace them. And this writer doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that as Christians, we're actually to consider ourselves in that stranger's debt, even though we've never met that person. And that, to quote his words again exactly, in exercising kindness towards them, we're to set no limit on that kindness other than the end of our resources. Let me explain what he means. What he's saying here is that, we, that he goes so far as to say that what we owe the stranger is all that we have to give. Everything. Now, I haven't named him. I wonder, who, can you guess who this radical voice from our tradition might be? Does anyone want to have a go? Would it surprise you if I told you it was John Calvin? A few gasps there. <laughs> John Calvin, if you know, doesn't have a reputation as being a social progressive. He's got quite a dour reputation, but I think that's a bit of an unfair caricature. The point is, it's not just songs about justice that we've forgotten. We've forgotten some of the best of our theological heritage too. Now, I am very glad to be ministering to a congregation that has not forgotten this important aspect of our faith. You have a long history in this place of being stewards of justice in Newton Breda and overseas. One example, the English language classes. They're a wonderful expression of our desire to follow the command given to God's people when God rescued them from Egypt. Week after week, many of you come to give your time to provide welcome and help to the stranger in our midst. But let me say to you that this doesn't mean that we can rest on our laurels as a congregation. Running English language classes doesn't tick the justice box as if that's it, job done. Our calling as Christ church is to seek justice in all that we do. And by that I mean we're to point people to Jesus as the one who not only restores our relationship with the Father, but who restores our relationships with one another. This is what we mean by the fullness of life offered in Christ. It's flourishing. It's life in right relationship with God and in right relationship with his creation. There's a theologian I like called Michael Gorman. And he refers to this sort of living as, he uses a fancy theological word here, cruciform living. But by that, he simply means that we're to live as people in the shape of the cross, cruciformed. And what that means is that we're to live looking up vertically to God and looking out horizontally to each other. And in his book, Reflecting on Scripture, 
he offers three characteristics of this cruciform living. He says that we're to follow Christ by showing self-denial, by showing hospitality to the weak and the marginalized, and by giving service to others other than, rather than domination. Now, I guess that means that if we're not living in such a way, then it doesn't matter how great our music is or how often we sing about justice. What will be the only true measure of our faith is how well we care for the least among us. And if we need a reminder of that, we don't need to look any further than the prophet Amos, do we? Maybe I can invite you to turn your eyes again, your attention to those words in your Bible. You know, I remember reading those words as a young Christian for the first time, and I had to look at the front cover of my book just to check it really was the Bible I was reading. They seem so raw and so honest. Because what Amos does here is really shocking for us. He begins by turning on its head a phrase that was very familiar to God's people. It was a phrase actually that represented the great hope of God's people. A great hope for victory in the future. And that phrase is the day of the Lord. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, you will come across this phrase time and time again. And always it refers to victory over God's peoples, the enemies of God's people. It's always about this great day of celebration for the people of God. Except in this one instance. Because look how Amos uses it. He says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Woe to you. And he says, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear. Or went into a house and rested a hand on the, hand on the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light? and gloom with no brightness in it. Can you imagine the shock at hearing these words? All those who were gathered puffed up with their feelings of self-importance, who took great pride in the sophistication of their worship and the beauty of the temple, they're all left open-mouthed, dumbfounded at what they're hearing from Amos. And I guess we need to ask, what could possibly justify such a dramatic outburst from Amos? What could cause him to so invert Israel's expectations? Well, if you were to flick back a few pages in your Bibles, and I encourage you to do that when you go home in your own time, you'll discover that God's people have not been living as they should. In fact, in very painful and excruciating detail, and with uncompromising language at times, Amos spells out the many, many ways God's people have exploited the poor, have ignored the stranger, and have made a mockery of justice. They've failed in every regard to uphold that fundamental command we read in Leviticus. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a command which the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans 13, when he tells us that love is the fulfilling of the law. But Amos hasn't finished yet with this inversion of the day of the Lord. 
the most offensive words are still to come. Because he goes on saying God's words. I hate, I despise your festivals. And notice how in what follows, the Lord invokes all of his, the senses here to communicate how offensive, how obnoxious, how repugnant is Israel's worship to God. God hates, he despises the very sight, sound and smell of all their songs and their sacrifices. Now, I gave the music group a bit of a challenge today with a new song that sings of God's justice, but I was wise enough not to give them another song that I love by a songwriter called John Foreman. It's called Instead of a Show. And it's a song that paraphrases the words of Amos 5. But he does it in a way that is targeted at the contemporary church. It's not easy singing, it's not easy listening. But let me share with you some of the words of that song. Your eyes are closed when you're praying. You sing along with the band, you shine up your shoes for services. There's blood on your hands. You turned your back on the homeless and the ones that don't fit in your plan. Quit playing religion games. There's blood on your hands. Maybe like the people of Israel listening to Amos, you think John Foreman is going a wee bit far here. Blood on our hands? Really? Well, I have some sympathy with that thought. As someone who's had a long interest in social justice, I've allowed myself to think at times that I'm doing enough, that I'm okay. But then, a couple of years ago, I visited the West Bank. And then my wife started working with an organization that works with partners in DR Congo, South Sudan, Rwanda. And I'm confronted again with how easy it is for us in the West to turn a blind eye to injustice. I had that experience again last Friday listening to Dr. Anne Zaki, whom I mentioned last week. She told us about her experience of traveling across the world to various Christian conferences. And when she goes to Christian conferences in the West, she has a similar experience every time. They'll shout out to the churches gathered from all over the world and they'll shout out to the churches from North America and there'll be a cheer. The churches in Europe and there'll be a cheer. The churches in Africa and Asia and the cheers will go on. And she waits every time for someone to mention the churches in the Middle East. But no mention ever comes. Christians in this troubled part of the world describe themselves to us as the forgotten church. When I came back from Palestine, I had people say to me, I didn't know there were Christians in Palestine. Christians who've been there since the day of Pentecost. It's a great shame on us. But today it's much worse listening to my friends from that part of the world. Because they now perceive themselves not as the forgotten church, but as the forsaken church. Because friends of mine in Bethlehem and in Egypt and in other places are looking at us their brothers and sisters in the West and asking, where are we? Why are we not speaking up and calling for an end to violence 
that actually threatens to destroy the church in Gaza. And so if we are to be stewards of justice in this world, maybe we do need to hear those words of Amos today. Maybe these are a word of the Lord to us as much as to God's people then. I think we need to take seriously the words the music group has sung this morning, that we're to act justly every day, loving mercy in every way, walking humbly before you, God. Because this is what God requires of us. He's told us. He doesn't want a show. He wants a flood of justice, an endless stream of righteous living as we play our part in building his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So as I finish, let it be our prayer that God will keep us from just singing and stir us into action. We must go. Let's pray together. Father God, we've heard this morning these solemn words of what you require of us. And Lord, we've been rebuked by our brothers and sisters in other places at how so easily we tune out the great injustices of our world. But we ask now, Lord, that you would uncover for us the injustice we participate in every day in our lives, not just in the global sphere. Father, show us today how you want us to act justly and how we use our money. Teach us how to show mercy to those who irritate us in our workplaces, those who've caused us hurt, even those who wish us harm. And Father, would you lead us in humility in all our relationships so that we might bring the scent of your loving kindness wherever we go. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.